lot of good stuff in these sections. You're pretty strong into Missouri at this point. Succession mm. in the Quorum of the Twelve is exciting. The value of sacrifice and what comes from that, especially tithing. The name of the church. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. So welcome. Before we get into our discussion, should we follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. So today we're in Doctrine and Covenants sections 115 to 120. In this section, the Lord declares uh, the full name of the church and all are told to arise and shine forth. The Lord is going to counsel his servants to repent of their sins and especially their covetous desires. He's also going to teach them that one sacrifice is greater than their increase. The Lord also encourages the quorum of the 12 apostles to keep preaching. He fills vacant places within the 12 and reestablishes the pattern of tithes. So there's a lot of different things that we can talk about in these sections, but we're going to focus in on three in particular. First is the name of the church. The second is the value of sacrifice. And the third is the succession of the Quorum of the Twelve. So in order to help us dive deeper into the scriptures and understand the historical context, we have our wonderful friend, Alex Baugh. Alex, will you come meet us up here? Thank you. Thank Welcome. you. Have a seat. So Alex, you're a professor of the Department of Church History and Doctrine at Brigham Young University. You also specialize and research in the early church period of Missouri specifically. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Alex, we really are excited. I don't know that there's anybody on the earth who knows more about the Missouri and church history than you. Oh, well, you're very kind. <laughs> I do enjoy the Missouri period, did my doctoral work on it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important because, of course, it has an ancient past, an early church history yeah. past, and also glorious future with the land of Zion in Missouri, so. Yeah, thank you. So before we get into our discussion, Alex, I'm wondering if there's anything that you found especially meaningful or significant in these sections. Well, I think first of all, Latter-day Saints should know that this place of far west where these revelations originate mm -hmm. was a very important place in church history. Far west was the largest uh, Latter-day Saint settlement uh, in Missouri, mm -hmm. and was also the headquarters of the church. Mm -hmm. Seven revelations were given there, including the one with the name of the church mm -hmm. and the law of tithing, as you've mentioned. Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, was born there. Mm -hmm. There's a temple site there. Mm -hmm. There's so much, really, in terms of the history of the Latter-day Saints in Far West, and, and they were there for over three years. Excellent. So let's jump right into it then and talk first about the name of the church. We look at section 115, and there's quite a bit of context behind the name of the church. Alex, maybe you could just kind of walk us through a little bit of the historical context there. I think Latter-day Saints might be surprised that we've had three yeah. official names of the church. Mm -hmm. The day the church was organized, April 6, 1830, uh, the name of the church given in the Revelation is Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it was the Church of Christ for four years. And finally, on May 3rd, 1834, Joseph Smith put in a, an article in a newspaper saying, from here on out, it's going to be the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Alexander Campbell had a movement called uh -huh. the Campbellites, and they were often referred to as the Disciples of Christ or also the Church of Christ. Oh, okay, okay. So I think to distinguish between those right. two, the, the name was changed to make that designation. And it was that name that prevailed for some time. And then on July 8th, we get this revelation. Uh, and in there, the Lord designates for the final time the actual name of the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we always uh, were nicknamed Mormon or Mormonite. And of course, we know that's not who we are, but it's yeah. because of our belief in the Book of Mormon. I think it's really, really important that we've now received a directive from President Nelson that we need to use the full name of the church wherever and however possible. 
He actually makes a pretty strong statement, Alex, exactly what you've alluded to. He says, when we discard the Savior's name, we are subtly disregarding all that Jesus did for us, even his atonement. In addition to kind of the focus on Jesus Christ and the, and the name, we also have the idea of saints. What does it mean to take upon yourself this title? I think being a saint is trying to be like Christ, loving kindness towards others, just saintly qualities, and the best person I can think of is Christ to emanate. Mm -hmm. And are you a saint? Am I a saint? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> and I ask that because the word saint comes from, uh, it comes through the Latin, which is sanctus, and then uh, when you see it in the New Testament, it's hagios, which essentially means a holy person, a holy one. But I'm always uncomfortable with these titles, you know, like the chosen people, or light of the world, or salt of the earth, or saint, a holy person. I like your, your response to my question because it, it gives the sense that saint is not so much a description of you know, how great we are, but maybe it provides an aspirational vision of who we're trying to become like Jesus Christ. I think it's not just something that we naturally are, but in the process of trying to become like Christ, he is helping us to become yeah. more sacred or saints in that sense as well. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints only possible because of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Danny. Sue so talked about the, the Latin and Greek origins of, of santo or holy sanctus. If you go one step further, you go to Hebrew where it's kadosh, which means set apart. And it's often used in uh, the Hebrew Bible to refer to Israel's marriage to God, you know, and being set apart, being consecrated mm -hmm. exclusively to him. Yeah. Excellent, thanks for that. And you look in, and I appreciate that, Danny, you look specifically to verse five. I mean, the Lord gives the name of his church in verse four, and then in verse five, it's like he's giving an explanation. That set apart idea actually comes, rings really true in this verse where he says, I say unto you all, arise and shine forth that thy light may be a standard for the nations. The Lord is expecting his saints to be set apart in this actual place, but also in how they're acting and things. So legitimately, the Lord is actually kind of using this term to say, you do need to be set apart. You need to be a light to these people. Yeah. I think another uh, aspect of this title is the use of the definitive article, the. It's not a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's the church or the church of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, clearly defining it's his church. Mm -hmm. And then he includes us yeah. in that title as those types of individuals who want to become sanctified, want to become saints and uh, exemplify his life and teachings. It's a very distinctive name. It's so unusual among the Christian denominations to have that kind of a title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Excellent, thanks. So this has been an excellent discussion on the name of the church. Now maybe we can transition and talk a little bit about this idea of our sacrifice being more sacred than our increase. Yeah, so if you look at it, section 117, verse 13, where the Lord says the following, he's referring to Oliver Granger, and he says, let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord. And when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. Alex, can you kind of give us some understanding what's going on here? That's quite an interesting statement. Sure. We should note that the church is trying to leave Kirtland behind. But unfortunately, they're in heavy debt. We've had a panic of 1837, the economic crisis in the United States, and the church is really in sad shape financially. Joseph's now in the first presidency is in far west. We need someone to try to reconcile those debts in Ohio. And Oliver Granger goes there to try to reconcile the problems associated with the church's money situation. He was mildly successful, but they didn't do as well as they had hoped. And I think the Lord's intimating, it doesn't matter that he's not going to be ultimately successful in relieving the church of its debt. But the fact that he's doing this and sacrificing, going back there and do his very best under difficult circumstances, the Lord said, that's good enough. 
if he's not completely successful, he's trying. And I think there's a message in that for all of us. Uh, the Lord doesn't expect perfection. He expects effort and sacrifice. Yeah. And Alex, how do you put that into context of William Marks and Newell K. Whitney? Because that section heading is specifically referring to them as well. They're also being asked to sacrifice, but in a different way than Oliver Granger's. Yes, uh, William Marks had been the leader of the church after the majority of the saints had left Kirtland. He was basically the stake president, and Newell K. Whitney is the, the bishop. And the Lord says, okay, what we have in Kirtland, just leave it behind. That's not what is important. The most important thing is that you unite with the body of the saints. That will be your sacrifice. Unfortunately, neither one of those made it to Missouri in time to fulfill that injunction. The Lord knows what the priorities should be, and he's trying to emphasize that in their lives. Beautiful. Any other thoughts or questions about sacrifice that you have? Yeah, Grace. I can think of multiple times in the scriptures when so many people are, are asked to sacrifice such great things, and. So many great blessings come from it. I think it's so important that we remember that the Lord is always mindful of us and he's never just gonna leave us in the dark, that when he asks something of us, he's going to bless us for it. And we just have to have that trust in the Lord that good things will come of it. Excellent. I have one observation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of think of a, an elder or a sister who goes on a mission mm -hmm. and uh, at the end of their mission, they haven't baptized anyone. Mm -hmm. They come home, are they a failure? Are mm -hmm. they, were they not successful? There was no increase, mm -hmm. but uh, you, you think about their missionary service. Uh, did they do what the Lord wanted them to do? Absolutely. Were they sanct more sanctified? Did they give gospel service? I was certainly changed on my mission. I'm sure mm -hmm. anyone yeah. can say that. And so the increase was not what was the most important thing. It was what they did in their term of service and sacrificing uh, during their missionary time. So uh, we don't always have to look at numbers or big events or whatever as, as being the increase. We can think of the most important thing being the sacrifice we make. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize too that the Lord sees increase differently than perhaps we do. And missionaries that came home early because of health issues, they felt like they didn't serve the, the full amount of time. So maybe they didn't do as much as the Lord wanted them to do or things like that. But they say that, you know, there was an overwhelming feeling of the spirit that they had served, you know, honorably that they had served to the best of their capacity and the Lord was pleased with what they did. Like that was their success, the effort they put forth, not so much the numbers of baptisms or anything like that. You know, we see in these future sections, section 119 especially, the Lord's going to talk to them about tithing. And you know, tithing is one example where the Lord is legitimately asking for a sacrifice of the people in order mm. to build his church. And sometimes we don't see those blessings like we could. I love Elder Holland who says, I pay my tithing because I wanna give something back. Mm -hmm. That kind of brings that idea too, that he's been given so much, he wants to give something back. Yeah, and it raises the question of why it is we're obeying commandments is because I'm paying tithing because I want stuff for me. Yeah. Or is it an expression of love, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I think we have a video or a question from our audience at home. Hello, my name is Jenica Black and I am from Clearfield, Utah. And one question and thought that I had looking at these chapters, it talks about our sacrifice being more sacred than our increase. And um, I thought about tithing and how we were commanded to pay tithing long ago and it's continued. I always hear people say, you know, they like paying tithing because they love the blessings they get from tithing and things like that. But I've always thought to myself, well, what if we didn't get blessings from paying tithing? What if it truly was just a sacrifice and we didn't get anything in return? Would we still do it? And I feel like that's almost 
the way that um, we should look at paying our tithing is if we don't get anything in return, will we still do it? And that to me shows like true dedication and um, true sacrifice um, is when we don't get an increase from, you know, giving. I kind of put myself into a, a young a young childhood moment. And I remember a Christmas Eve every year, my parents going shopping. And I used to always wonder, why in the world would they wait until Christmas Eve? Be proactive, right? <laughs> I didn't realize what was going on until years later. My father said to me, it was because we never had any money. And on Christmas Eve, someone inevitably would leave $25 or $50 or whatever it was on the doorstep. Some could have said, in a sense, you know, where's our increase? We, where's our new car? Where's our house? You know, but um, I think sometimes it's a matter of also recognizing that increase comes in a variety of ways. Maybe the increase is that we're better able to be empathetic to those who are in need. I, I think that increase is perhaps what is helping us to become more like Christ. Any thoughts on that, Alex? Well, I think, like you say, many of the blessings we uh, receive through tithing is, are hidden. Yeah. Good health. Yeah. Uh, could that have been a blessing as a result of tithing or just wisdom to how to guide your life or get directions from the Holy Ghost? Uh, those alone could be worth greater than any mm -hmm. type of monetary blessing. I, I drive a car that's nearly 300,000 miles. I don't have a car payment on it. Mm -hmm. I haven't had it for years. It's a tithing rebate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it runs fine. It's not yeah. really fancy, but yeah. uh, it works just great. And uh, so I think most of the time, probably those blessings are not realized because we just don't see them. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many people will testify of the law of tithing and have a story or some experience associated with it because it's real. You think about the church today. I mean, at this point, these are people that were in a destitute situation. I mean, they built this temple. They had very little money. They're, they're going to be kicked out of this land. They're going to head to Nauvoo, and they really are struggling. I would imagine that some of them perhaps did not see the blessings or their increase at that time. But you fast forward this now to 2020, and the Lord really has blessed people and blessed the church in a magnificent way. But sometimes it's the patience and faith that is required of the saints. That Sometimes these blessings aren't immediate, but they are, they are coming, and they will come. I love that idea is that sometimes when the Lord blesses us, the blessings extend beyond ourselves. I mean, I was yeah. just thinking as you were talking, like, you know, my parents converting to the church, for example, they probably couldn't have imagined what would happen, you know, with their children and their grandchildren. And now I'm teaching at BYU and just like all these sure. blessings that have come to, to them because of that one decision that they made. Just this idea that blessings look different than perhaps we sometimes anticipate. Yeah, Danny. Blessings oftentimes aren't individual per se. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it affects your whole family. For the, for the Israelites when they're sacrificing an animal or something mm -hmm. like that. It didn't necessarily make them rich, but it allowed them to be able to live in the land mm -hmm. and to be able to be forgiven of their sins and to be able to be worthy just to have God with them in their lives, you know? Yeah, excellent. I think of W.W. Phelps, who wrote, you know, wrote the song, Praise to the Man, and in there, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. But at this time, he wasn't the most active person in 1838. Is, is that right? Actually, W.W. Phelps is, uh, church uh, status is in question. Right. Years later, you know, in 1844, he will uh, pen those very words. Yeah. He reunited himself with the church and taught the very principle we're talking about. And I don't think he really understood it in 1838. And sometimes it is a matter of that eternal perspective. God will keep his promises. He always will. I'm reminded of the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants section 82, verse 10. I, Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. The promises are sure. We just have to demonstrate that by our sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And there's a quote from Dallin Oates that speaks to this uh, issue. He says, During World War II, my widowed mother supported her three young children on a school teacher's salary that was meager. 
When I became conscious that we went without some desirable things because we didn't have enough money, I asked my mother why she paid so much of her salary as tithing. I have never forgotten her explanation. Dallin, there might be some people who can get along without paying tithing, but we can't. The Lord has chosen to take your father and leave me to raise you children. I cannot do that without the blessings of the Lord, and I obtain those blessings by paying honest tithing. When I pay my tithing, I have the Lord's promise that he will bless us, and we must have those blessings if we are to get along. So it just kind of goes back to this idea that when the Lord gives a commandment, we obey that commandment, he's bound to bless us, right? And part of it is just kind of recognizing in what form those blessings come, whether it's temporal or spiritual, strengthening us to endure our difficulties. And I think there's wisdom in sometimes praying for discernment to be able to recognize the kind of tender mercies that God gives us and which are maybe specifically associated with our paying of tithing. And it goes beyond tithing. It goes to any commandment of the Lord, a commandment to pray or the commandment to read our scriptures and study. And you think, you know, sometimes those things just seem like you're marking, you're checking something off. But mm-hmm. I think many of us could say the same thing as President Oaks's mother. We don't have time not to pray. We yeah. don't have time not to read our scriptures because we have learned to recognize in our lives that God multiplies the blessings and we are completely dependent upon him. And if we don't pray, then our life is really gonna get yeah. hard. Maybe just one more quote from the uh, lectures on faith. It goes something like, uh, the religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things. Yep. And that we could add a temporal and uh, physical, whatever, mm-hmm. spiritual, never can produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, God expects his, his children to sacrifice uh, in the name of the Lord for his purposes. Mm-hmm. And the promises, again, will will definitely be realized, but they do come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Excellent. This has been a great discussion on the idea that our sacrifice is more sacred than our increase. Let's talk now a little bit about the, uh, the succession of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I love this topic. Alex, can you give us some historical context to section 118 and, and this succession process that's happening? We definitely had a lot of dissension in Kirtland. Four apostles became disaffected from the church for various reasons. We lost John Boynton and Lyman Johnson in Kirtland, and now in Missouri, we've lost Luke Johnson, his Lyman's brother, and William E. McClellan. We have to replace them. And this is a, an incredible revelation in a number of ways because the Lord specifically names who he has selected for the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. These names will be familiar to many Latter-day Saints. You can read that in verse six. Uh, Let my servant John Taylor and also John E. Page, some are not familiar with him and that's not surprising because he will uh, become disaffected from the church. Uh, Wilford Woodruff and Willard Richards. Two of those will become the president of the church. Well, why did they become the president of the church? Well, they were first called all together. Uh-huh. In May 1835, uh, Joseph Smith uh, reordered this seniority based on age, and then thereafter, it would be by time of ordination. Mm-hmm. I love this, this understanding of the succession of, of the brethren. I recognize that when the prophet speaks and he's speaking as the prophet, that man has gone through from being the most junior apostle all the way through until he's finally become the prophet. When you're referring to a senior member of the Quorum of the Twelve, there is a lot of experience and a lot of sacrifice on their parts and a lot of revelation and a lot of understanding and hearing and knowing the voice of God. The other important thing about this section is the Lord's calling all of the Twelve to go on a follow-up mission to Great Britain. Mm -hmm. August and September of 1839, they'll all go over to Great Britain and there they'll be for about two years. Mm -hmm. When they come back, 
Joseph Smith is so pleased with their, their efforts, their commitment, that uh, he begins to give them more and more responsibilities in Nauvoo. And eventually, on March 26, 1844, he bestows all of the keys that he has. He'll confer those keys upon the faithful members of the Twelve. Which becomes mm -hmm. critical because of the death comes literally three months after that date, right? Exactly. How has uh, it been manifested to you that the president of the church was the right man for the job at that time? Yeah, Terry. Two prophets come to mind. One is Brigham Young. He did such a good job leading the saints to Salt Lake. And then the other one I, I was thinking about is Gordon B. Hinckley and how he came out with the family proclamation before the family was under attack really hard. That one has always stuck out to me. Excellent. Yeah, Angela. Well, I've been thinking about this, in particular with President Nelson. He's the prophet at a time when we have this great medical epidemic. And who better to be leading the church, leading the world, than a medical doctor? Mm -hmm. He's very much the person that we needed to have during an epidemic. Yeah. Talking about how President Nelson is a doctor, I just think it's important to know that this is like a smart man. <laughs> it's, it's actually a really good point, and I think for this moment, it seems that that is an important part of who our prophet is today. It's, it's the prophet and also who he's married to. Yeah. When they were dedicating the Rome Temple, they did an interview with, with Sister Nelson and Sister Oaks, and, and one of the interviewers was basically saying, you know, tell us about yourself a little bit. They responded, well, we're PhDs in this field, and we have these two women that we're able to talk on an intellectual basis in Rome on extremely important topics. So it's interesting that both President Nelson and President Oaks, this is their, their second marriage, right? And so that, that relationship also between their wives is extremely important as they lead this church too. I love the quote by Harold B. Lee, no man or woman is truly converted until they see the power of God resting upon his servants, and it goes down into their hearts like fire. And it didn't take long to see President Nelson take upon him the mantle of the prophet. Right? One of the courses that we teach is uh, the living prophets. I think some students have a stronger testimony of living prophets than others. And it's fascinating as the students will read uh, the talks of the brethren and they'll understand and study their lives. It's amazing to watch, in some cases, the transformation of students who are paying the price. The Spirit really will testify to them very deeply of the teachings and the authority of, of these men in that specific calling. A couple of years ago during a general conference and we were doing the confirmations of the first presidency, I had such a strong witness that this is God's prophet. I mean, I was in tears. I thought, oh my goodness, I know this. But the thought came to me soon after, well, why do I have to know that? Months later, there were things that happened in our family and somebody fell away from the church. And I thought, I, I thought, but I know, I know that he is the prophet. And I know that he is leading us the way we're supposed to be led. And I don't know if that's why I had such a strong feeling, but I do know that our prophet is the man who has been called of God. And for those who may be struggling with that, we really do invite you to be praying and finding that out for yourself. It is a critical part of our testimony. Thank you. Alex, any last thoughts, comments that you want to hit on? I just feel very strongly that the principles all meant to be a blessing in our lives, to bless the church and to allow the church to bless humanity and, and the members themselves. So I think uh, these are powerful revelations which really uh, can increase our testimony in the Savior 
and in his teachings and doctrine and his divinity. Excellent. So this has been an excellent discussion on the succession of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, Thank you so much for your comments and your insights and uh, for edifying us. Alex, we thank you for a life devoted to understanding the history of the church and especially your time focused on on Missouri and the teachings of the prophets so that we could also better understand these scriptures. So thank you. And thank you for coming today and being with us. We appreciate it. We'd like to thank you also, those of you here in the studio. We appreciate your insights, your thoughts, your comments, your questions. Thank you. And to those of you at home, thanks for sending us your comments and questions and insights via social media. Uh, We'd love to have you come join us in the studio sometime. But if you can't, we hope you'll tune in next week for Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.